This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 3rd, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this week we had some promising vaccine news and some more complicated information about treatment. Over the weekend, the FDA gave an emergency use authorization, or EUA, for ad 26 covid 2 s a new vaccine from Janssen Pharmaceuticals. This vaccine uses a technology that's different from the two vaccines that are currently in use in the United States. How does it work? So the Janssen vaccine isn't new conceptually. In fact, I think that our colleague, Lindsay, gave the first dose to humans many years ago, not for SARS-CoV-2, but for a candidate HIV vaccine. It's a vectored vaccine that uses an adenovirus to carry the DNA encoding the viral antigen. This is the same type of delivery system that's been used by other vaccines, including the one from the Oxford AstraZeneca group and the Russian group. All of these use viruses that are mutated so they cannot replicate. They need to be propagated in specialized cell lines that provide the components necessary for replication to occur. However, once inside a host, they can't produce more virus and they're unable to integrate into the cell's chromosome. The gene they carry is expressed for a while by infected cells, then lost over time. There have been many investigational adenoviral vector vaccines, including the one that Lindsay looked at, and then the one for Ebola virus, which is already approved for use in humans. There are many adenoviruses out there, both human and animal, and they've been engineered to carry viral antigen genes. The current vaccine, the Janssen vaccine, uses a serotype 26 backbone, or AD26. This is the same backbone used in the Ebola virus vaccine, the advantage is there is limited pre-existing immunity to ad 26 in the human population. And where immunity exists, it tends to be very low level. Thus, it seems to be rare for individuals to have immune responses that block infection by the vector. One important characteristic of these vaccines, once you make the vector and test it extensively, it's a relatively simple process to use it for any old antigen. Thus, if we're ever necessary to re-engineer the COVID-19 vaccine, for example, to protect against new variant viruses, it would be pretty easy to, at least in the laboratory, to make a new vaccine. Eric, you point out many important features, and I think it reflects what's gone on over the last 20 years with vaccine development and different ways to develop delivery systems that can stimulate the immune system in potent ways against old pathogens or novel pathogens. And as you pointed out, my work with AD26 and Dan Baruch at the BI at the time was with Crucell, and the NIH has been very supportive of vaccine development, and the quest for an HIV vaccine is still ongoing. And this was one of the ways to try and elicit important immune responses against HIV, hopefully protective. What was built into the design of the AD26 and other viral vectors is the issue of replication incompetence. So even though it's a viral vector, it's not a replicating live attenuated virus. It's a replication incompetent virus. And there are other viral vectors like that. And what one is able to do is swap in and out the inserts. So you can have inserts for HIV, for Ebola, for Zika, for pathogens of concern, now SARS-CoV-2, and you have a delivery system that can deliver it to the immune system with the insert of interest so that you can then elicit immune responses that we think are important. 
And with this type of viral vector, it's able to elicit both B and T cell responses, which are attractive in terms of the immune responses we hope to see that we think are protective. Obviously, uh, efficacy trials are needed to demonstrate protection. One of the other features you raised, Eric, which is implicit, but I think is worth making explicit, is the issue of the immune response to the delivery system. Does the immune response recognize the delivery system and therefore impair its ability to deliver its cargo to the immune system? And that's been somewhat of a problem with adenovirus serotype 5, but has seemed to be much less of an issue with rarer serotypes like adenovirus 26. But that's obviously something that we'll have to pay attention to as we use viral vector delivery systems, the same one repetitively, as to what, if any, implications are there that will require us to pay attention to the immune response to the delivery system, such as the specific adenovirus serotype. Thus far, not an issue, but it's something we'll have to pay attention to. You raise an important point that we've made before, but comes up again, which is that the reason we've been able to get to successful vaccines so quickly is because of a very large investment in vaccine platforms and vaccine delivery systems. A lot of that driven by HIV. Ironically, we don't have an HIV vaccine, and that turns out to be extremely difficult to make. But a lot of the basic science that leads to the kinds of vaccines that we've developed, including the ones being employed all over the world, came from developments in HIV research. So we have benefited, even though we don't have an HIV vaccine. And just to build on that, Eric, it also means that even though we're able to develop effective vaccines for SARS-CoV-2 in under a year, it wasn't done in a vacuum. The science enabling it, but also the safety based upon use of these types of delivery systems and vaccine constructs in other settings over the last 10 to 20 years has allowed us to better understand both the potential immunogenicity, so benefit, as well as the safety profile, so that can be optimized before the insert of interest is utilized. So it really is a big investment over years to decades by our public health and other authorities and industry as well, because it's really been a collaboration. I know that as of now, there's no published data on this new vaccine, but the company has released extensive data to the FDA, which did its own analysis of the results of the company's phase three trial. In that analysis, how well did the vaccine work? Before we get to how it worked, it's important to point out that this was a single dose of vaccine, unlike the two mRNA vaccines, which we are currently using in the US, both of which require two doses. The trial was designed that way because the early phase data, which we published a while back, showed that even with one dose, antibody levels continued to rise at least for a couple of months, and they were relatively high. So the company decided to proceed with two parallel trials, one with two doses, which we don't know the answer to yet, and one with a single dose, the one that has just been reviewed. This trial included almost 40,000 participants. It was conducted in a few different countries, the US, South Africa, and a collection of Latin American countries. The participants were randomized to receive either vaccine or placebo, then followed for the development of symptomatic COVID-19 for a median of two months and for safety signals. As far as safety, the vaccine was generally well tolerated with a fairly typical set of what are called reactogenic symptoms, both local and systemic. These are the kinds of symptoms that happen shortly after the vaccine's administered and that largely resolve rapidly. 
Serious adverse events seem to be relatively well distributed between both groups, though it's important to remember that given this number of participants, we're not going to see very rare problems with this or any other vaccine. The bottom line is it worked. There were two primary efficacy outcomes looking at disease diagnosed at least 28 days after vaccination. This is measured in several different ways, but overall the vaccine showed somewhere on the order of 65 to 70% efficacy. Most of the subgroups were too small to really reliably detect a signal. However, there really were no problems that stood out. The efficacy was slightly better in the US than either in South Africa or Latin America, but we'll have to see if that holds up as further vaccination occurs. I mean, Eric, you point out many very important issues that we have to weigh. We're not in a position to wait for all the data which will take years to accrue, and then look back and say, here's the way to optimize the regimen. We are getting data in real time as studies are partially matured and trying to make the best public health decisions given the speed of the epidemic. So what we don't know, and you've alluded to this, is both of the mRNA vaccines were two-dose regimens for full immunogenicity and then protection while this regimen was a single dose. Well, they're actually looking at a two-dose regimen, but that'll take a few months for those data to come out. So it's very hard to compare what a one-dose mRNA regimen would look like compared to a one-dose AD26 or two-dose mRNA to a two-dose AD26, because those data are not yet available and won't be for a few months until the studies mature and are able to be compared in that sense. But the other piece, which you've alluded to, is these vaccine studies were done at different times in different places. And therefore, as things evolve, how do we compare efficacy when other background aspects of the epidemic are changing? And that's another piece that we have to look at carefully as we interpret the results from these studies and try to compare them, which we're all trying to do, but is not so easy. And ultimately, the overall efficacy on severe illness and mortality is very compelling across the board. The other piece that I wanted to raise about the reactogenicity or the side effects you have a day or two after you're vaccinated. We do know that the AD26 or the AD5, when these delivery systems are given at higher doses, such as 10 to the 11th, the side effect profile is more significant, while when you give it at lower doses, let's say half the dose, at five times 10 to the 10th, it's generally well tolerated. And that's been seen for many years across many different inserts. So same delivery system, different inserts. And so the data we see in the field trial is consonant with other data from other studies about the dose of the delivery system and how it's pretty well tolerated. So I think that's all reassuring through time. But it is tempting but difficult to compare the efficacy across these different studies. What do we know about the efficacy of this new vaccine against the virus variants that have raised so much concern? Well, we don't know anything directly. However, we can make some guesses. In Brazil, where there are a couple of variants, P1 and P2, where the P1 variant is the more concerning because of the number of mutations, most of the variants In fact, about two-thirds of the disease was caused by P2, the sort of less concerning variant. So it's a little hard to extrapolate from the data in Brazil. However, in South Africa, almost all of the disease was caused by 
the variant of primary concern, the B1351 variant, and the efficacy in South Africa was pretty good. So that strongly suggests that at least for this one variant, which has raised considerable concern, this vaccine seems to do pretty well. But I think the bigger question, Steve, that you're raising is variants will continue to emerge. It's part of evolution. So the more virus replicating globally, the global burden of viral replication will lend itself to variants emerging. And the variants will emerge in response to the selective pressure, which in this case is largely immunologic, be it from wild type infection or from vaccine induced immunity. So the best approach is to have the highest level of immunity as broadly as possible, which is another way of saying we need to vaccinate as many people as quickly as possible to try and dampen down the amount of virus replication. The specifics of the P1, P2, B1351 are very important of interest, but it's really how to look at the issue of virologic escape to immunologic pressure and how do we apply that pressure as uniformly as possible to prevent it. Because there is evidence of activity, but we need to have it high enough so that it stops further escape. Let me reiterate something that we discussed uh, last week and really the week before as well, because it keeps coming up. There are good reasons, as Lindsay said, to hurry and get the vaccine out there. The more vaccine we get out there, the more open we can be as a society, of course, and the more we limit viral replication in the population and limit the number of variants that can develop. Equally, it's important to get this vaccine out everywhere. So not just in the U.S., because the variants can arise anywhere and we know they travel very easily. So we are under threat by what's going on in every country in the world right now. And it is in our own self-interest to make sure that viral replication is contained everywhere. Turning from vaccines to treatments, this past week, we published two articles that add to what we know about the use of IL-6 inhibitors in COVID-19. Up till now, most studies have been somewhat discouraging. But what did we learn from these two newer studies? So these studies were in the same vein as several that we've published, asking the question, is inhibition of the IL-6 pathway helpful in moderate or severe COVID-19? The work has two theoretical bases. First, IL-6 levels are elevated oftentimes, particularly in severe COVID-19. And second, we know that dexamethasone, the anti-inflammatory corticosteroid, helps prevent death in many severe cases of infection. There's been hope that drugs that inhibit the pro-inflammatory signaling produced by IL-6 might also help with clinical outcomes. But as you said, a number of earlier trials had not had particularly encouraging results. So the trials we published this week were somewhat different from each other. The first trial was a classic randomized controlled trial, which treated patients with what they define as severe COVID-19 with the monoclonal antibody tocilizumab, which inhibits the IL-6 receptor, or placebo. The primary endpoint was the clinical status at 28 days after receiving the study drug as rated on an ordinal scale that's been used in many other trials. Of the almost 440 people who were included, there was no significant difference in improvement in clinical outcomes, and likewise, there was no difference in the death rates. However, the second trial reached different conclusions. It studied two different drugs, tocilizumab and a second anti-IL-6 receptor antibody, cerilumab, though most patients received tocilizumab in this trial. 
it was a more complicated trial design where these drugs were considered as arms in an adaptive trial. The primary outcome was a composite of days free of respiratory and cardiovascular support and death. And the results were interpreted using a Bayesian statistical model. There were approximately 400 patients who received either drug and they were compared to a similar number of controls. In this trial though, the composite results were clearly superior for each of the anti-IL-6 agents over placebo. When survival at 90 days was considered separately as an outcome, the pooled drug treatment groups, again, had superior results to placebo. Eric, as you point out, I mean, these are complicated studies. They're open-label nature, the adaptive design, which as we have watched this platform emerge, is complicated to fully understand because these adaptive trials never end. So there isn't a clear beginning or end because you are adding treatments and subtracting treatments as data come in that are directive, which is terrific in terms of being able to expedite evaluation, but make it more complicated to interpret because the control group which is standard of care is continuing through time and that standard of care is changing through time. And one has to pay attention to how the minimization of subjectivity. What I mean by that is the subjectivity of the endpoint, which is, you know, for example, intubation or other supportive care that changes over time. So these are very exciting results, but they're challenging for us to interpret. So we have two studies with very different results. How do they compare to other studies that we've seen? As you mentioned earlier, Steve, most previously published trials show a modest effect or none at all for tocilizumab. However, there's a preprint that was posted recently that has not yet been published to my knowledge, at least as of this moment, from the very large recovery trial, which is another adaptive trial design, which has a positive result, this time for 28-day mortality. This hasn't been peer-reviewed, as I said. However, the data are out there, and they show that they performed a very large trial of more than 4,000 patients. Without going into any of the details, the trial suggested a small but significant survival benefit for the groups treated with tocilizumab. So how then do we reconcile these discrepant results? As I was saying, I mean, there are challenges with the background changing of care. So as we look at different results from you know, multiple RCTs that have studied tocilizumab, we have to pay close attention to where and when in the world the trials were done because standards of care are variable, access to medications are variable, and what we as a community thought is helpful has been changing over the last six to nine months. So that with the change in the background care, for example, when do we intubate? How do we do respiratory support? When do we use corticosteroids such as dexamethasone, which in July of 2020, data emerged from the recovery group suggesting a timing when that was beneficial. Also, if given too early, may be harmful. So there actually is a complicated therapeutic window for different therapies. And then how do different adjunctive treatments such as tocilizumab, which is yet another immune modulator on top of perhaps another immune modulator like dexamethasone, may have a different effect when it is used in what background of care? In addition, do we really understand when an immune modulator is most beneficial? 
And I think of this as the Goldilocks issue for those who like that bedtime story, which is, is the porridge too hot, too cold, or just right? Is the immune system too hot, too cold, or just at a place where the appropriate amount of immunosuppression or immune dampening can be beneficial? And it seems that in these studies with the acute flare of an inflammatory response, days to a week or so into illness, may be a time when dampening that immune response may be most beneficial. But these data, they're not simple. They're not all saying the same thing. Or if they are, we haven't fully teased that out. But I think they're all consistent. We just have to best understand the clinical phenotype and the timing. For me, one of the striking differences between the earlier studies and particularly the two studies with positive results is that they were done at a later time point when dexamethasone was a standard of care. And now lots of things changed in the standard of care, but it is interesting to speculate that dexamethasone might inhibit certain parts of the inflammatory cascade, and that might synergize in some way with IL-6 inhibition to give you a more beneficial effect that gets revealed only by the presence of dexamethasone. But of course, as Lindsay said, lots of things have changed. So that's only a hypothesis. And in the context of an acute inflammatory flare, you know, and really understanding how to define that, which is just so tricky. I guess one question is going to be, given the complicated data out there, is tocilizumab or other anti-IL-6 agents, are these agents going to become standard of care now? And I can look at our own hospital where the answer is likely yes, that looking across these data, the pharmacy committee together with the infectious disease specialists in our hospital have decided that they will, under certain circumstances, use tocilizumab. It's kind of coming full circle because it was commonly used at the beginning of the outbreak and then fell off in popularity with a lot of negative studies. And now we're coming back to starting to use the drug again. I think... Each hospital, jurisdiction, clinical setting is going to have to carefully weigh these data, which are not simple to apply. And, you know, as you say, Eric, at the hospital we work at, it's being considered, as you suggest, but I understand there's complexity in how different communities will view these data, given the uncertainties. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.